This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 83 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending January 5, 2018, the Lost Our Minds edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and myself take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. We have a special guest, Jonathan Marks, joins us to discuss his new board and fraud blog. Some of the stories we take a look at are the continued fallout from the Keppel offshore enforcement action, particularly involving the in-house lawyer, Jeffrey Chow, and the systemic nature of the corruption at the company. We consider Rick Mezik's article in the Global Anti-Corruption blog about risk assessments. Uh, Jonathan Marks joins us, as I mentioned, to discuss his new blog. We take a look at an article from, uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce this guy's first name, but his last name is Diamantis, which appeared in the uh, New York University uh, blog, and it discusses the purpose of corporate enforcement in the context of asking whether it's deterrence or punishment. There is more fallout from the Oxif matter, where its former hedge fund executive Michael Cohn was indicted for fraud in an Africa investment scheme at the heart of the uh, FCPA enforcement action. We talk about the conviction of the uh, Turkish banker for his plot to uh, the country's uh, banking plots to evade Iranian sanctions. We take a look at the Petrobras settlement of the U.S. securities suit based upon corruption allegations for $2.95 billion. I discuss my January uh, podcast series of 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program and announce my new next compliance masterclass. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of This Week in FCPA with my good friend and colleague, Jay Rosen. This is episode 83 for the week ending January 5, 2018, the Lost Our Minds edition. In this episode, uh, Jay and I take a look at some of the top compliance stories over the past week. We are joined by special guest, Jonathan Marks, to discuss his new uh, board and fraud blog, and the compliance masterclass that he and I are going to put on in Miami in February. So, Jay, uh, with that, we had uh, actually a pretty interesting week, it turned out. So why don't we hop right into it? Let's uh, let's go all around the world and uh, FCPA, starting in Singapore. What's happening there? 
So uh, most of our listeners are probably aware of the Keppel Offshore FCPA settlement, which happened uh, at the end of 2017, and not to stand on ceremony. Uh, but uh, since that happened in 2017, I thought it might be interesting to take a look at the um, kind of fallout from that, uh, which was uh, one of the fa- things that intrigued me, Jay, was we had an in-house lawyer pled guilty uh, back in January, but the plea was announced in late December when the Keppel Offshore matter was announced. Uh, so we, uh, it's really the first time we've uh, had an in-house lawyer uh, pleading guilty to being a part of the FCPA conspiracy. And uh, it was a fellow named uh, Jeffrey Chow, and he is a U.S. citizen uh, working in Brazil, excuse me, in Singapore for um, involved in Keppel's bribery in Brazil. He was a former member of the uh, senior leadership team, and um, he uh, got caught up in in doing this. And one of the things that um, struck me was his mea culpa that uh, he said, I should have refused to draft the contract that we used for paying bribes, and I should have resigned from Keppel. And uh, perhaps it's uh, not too late for him to come to that realization, but it's certainly a turned out to be a very expensive lesson for him as he's pled guilty and he's waiting for um, sentencing, which will happen later this year. Also is really the systemic nature of the corruption. When you have the uh, in-house law department drafting bribery contracts, that's probably not a good sign, but it is a sign that there is a systemic bribery and corruption uh, in your organization and Dick Casson reported on uh, both of these stories, and we've linked to that in the show notes, uh, really, uh, once again, belying the fact of, uh, or the myth, rather, I should say, of the, of the rogue employee. So lots in the Keppel Offshore case, lots for the compliance practitioner, to uh, uh, lessons to be learned, um, and for uh, the legal beagles and legal eagles who are on not only participate in this podcast, but are also listening to this podcast it's a very somber lesson on what can happen when you get caught up as a part of the bribery scheme itself. And just a couple technical facts. Um, the fine is being split between Brazil, Singapore, and the U.S. Uh, Brazil gets half of it of $211 million, and uh, Singapore and U.S. each get $105 million. And the other interesting part here is that uh, – the DOJ granted Keppel full credit for its, quote, substantial cooperation, unquote. Uh, the cooperation included the remediation and an internal investigation. And with cooperation credit, Keppel received 25% discount of the bottom of the fee range. So uh, to me, Jay, that shows that the um, new FCPA enforcement policy, uh, the Department of Justice is using it. It's working. It uh, working. Keppel did not self-disclose, so they did not get uh, more credit. But it demonstrates once again that if you do uh, turn it around and you do cooperate and you extensively remediate, the DOJ will substantively uh, provide you with credit for that. So, Jay, next up was a very interesting uh, article by Rick Messick, uh, who is uh, one half of the Global Anti-Corruption blog founders, and he wrote an article about risk assessments. I found it extraordinarily interesting, but you want to tell us about it? Yeah, it's um, it's really uh, very incisive. It's very clearly written, and um, 
basically what he talks about is some best practices for risk assessments. And first, he says that um, you should take a look at all conceivable forms of corruption to which the organization may be exposed. Uh, second, you need to do an estimate of how likely each of these possible forms of corruption will have occurred. And third, you need to do an estimate of the harm that will result from each. And what tends to happen is that uh, sometimes people overestimate the risk and sometimes people underestimate the risk. And um, one of the examples he used was a UK company that when they set about to be doing their uh, risk assessment, they knew uh, the company was Aon Limited and they knew their English company so well that they placed a higher probability of them having a risk within the U.S., rather within the U.K., and they did not look at their global operations. And what actually happened was the opposite. So he goes on into the article to talk about um, the best way to be doing risk assessments. And I just thought it was um, a very clear and concise approach and would be very useful for for the uh, risk assessment practitioners who listen in. Did you have any uh, other thoughts on that, Tom? Yeah, I would. Uh, I really uh, agree with your assessment, Jay. It was an excellent article. I had not really seen um, the formulation of what was needed and the critical steps articulated as well as uh, Rick put into this article. Um, the, uh, the four steps he said uh, for doing a risk assessment are, as you noted, all conceivable forms of corruption within the organization activity and sector need to be cataloged and two, estimate of how likely it is uh, that each of the possible forms of corruption will occur is prepared. Third, there be an estimate of the harm that will result in four. You uh, then combine the chances of the occurrence with the probability of its impact to produce uh, a list of risk, prioritized risk list, and that the critical steps are two and three. Then he gives some examples on, as you noted, uh, how and why there's a failure uh, that uh, certainly I'm going to be exploring as we go forward. And he really, uh, he spoke to the um, behavioral aspect of behavioral uh, psychology aspect of this by citing to the paper by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. Uh, Kahneman, of course, is the uh, Nobel Prize winner economist. Judgment under uncertainty, heuristics and biases, which came out in the 90s and forms the basis of Richard Thaler's work, who won the Nobel Prize for Economy uh, in uh, Economics last year, also writing in behavioral uh, economics. So, Lots of good stuff there. Uh, great uh, piece from Rick, as is uh, all of the stuff that he puts forward. Um, so next up, we have a, a guest, uh, guest star, I should say, but certainly a guest, Jonathan Marks. Jonathan's a partner in Markham LLC, and we asked him to come on board because he has started a new blog. So, Jonathan, could you tell us uh, what uh, persuaded you to start a new blog? What's it about, and what do you hope to accomplish with it? Well, Tom, it all goes back to you. So, um, you know, I, I've been a I've been a fan of Tom's, and certainly have known Jay for a long time, and a fan of Jay's as well. But, um, you know, I, I love what I do, and I have a lot of passion around what I do. And um, I, I've built methodology from the ground up. You know, going back to the, you know, early 1900s. No, I'm kidding. Um, going early, you know, back to you know my early my early days of my career, and I love giving back to the profession. And so. One of the things that I really like to do is I really like to write and I really like to share my ideas with people. 
And so after speaking with you um, on several different occasions, I decided to, number one, start writing a book, which I've done. And number two was, you know, sort of as a precursor to that is to start to write a weekly blog, which I have done as well. So my blog is titled uh, uh, Board and Fraud. And um, it really is going to focus on, you know, the issues that boards face every single day with regards to oversight and management of the risk assessment fraud process, including the audit committee and all the issues related to governance, risk and compliance and dealing with, you know, various fraud issues throughout the organization and the extended organization. So, Jonathan, um, could you give us a hint on uh, maybe one of uh, your uh, first couple of posts, what you uh, talked about? Well, I have a couple articles out there on skepticism. I'm a big fan of skepticism, and I was listening into your podcast, and, you know, you talked about risk assessment. You talked about the human element. Um, you know, I, I have something that I'm, I'm putting together now, which I started a while back. It's basically called putting the Freud in fraud and focusing on the mind behind the crime. And, you know, it's, you know, I, I said this ad nauseum, but books and records don't pay bribes. People do. And I think a big part of what we, what we miss is the human factor, you know, when doing a lot of this and I've been touting this for years and now I'm going to basically put, you know, my pen, uh, in my pen to work and start sharing my thoughts and ideas that I've learned from real life cases that I've worked on and, and situations that I've been involved with over my career. Well, Jonathan, it's great to have you in the, the blogging fraternity. Anything from the, the West Coast, Jay? Um, I, I also uh, sh share a hearty welcome to you and uh, wondering when you're coming out this way because i uh, love to get together with you uh, here on the West Coast. So uh, give us a heads up, Jonathan, and uh, maybe we can put together uh, a breakfast or a dinner session and, and get some local practitioners together. That'd be great because I would love to get out of the 16 inches of snow that we're in and the eight degrees of weather that we're currently experiencing. So, so and I will just end this uh, section with uh, here's hoping for an Eagles Patriots Super Bowl, gentlemen. There you go. That would be <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Jay. Have a great weekend. Thanks again. Be safe. So, Jay, next up, I'm going to jump to. Uh, Another issue that's popped up from OCZIF, uh, most of our listeners will recognize that as a FCPA enforcement action, which settled in 2016, one of the uh, very large cases that settled then. Uh, but we had some information about one of the uh, hedge fund executives, Michael Kahn, was indicted uh, for his role in this. Uh, you want to tell us about that? Um, yeah, it's um, dating back to the issues that they're, they were having in Africa, and uh, they've been looking into violations in OXIF's uh, activities in uh, some of your favorite places, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Libya, and other nations in Africa, and it's prompted investors such as public uh, pension funds and foundations to pull their uh, investments in the fund. And basically... Uh, Cohen concealed a conflict of interest that he had connected with an investment in a mining company. And some of the shares of that mining company had been sold to Oxif's African investing venture by an unnamed co-conspirator who owed Cohen $18 million connected to the purchase of a luxury yacht. So this person was going to use the proceeds from the sale of those shares to partially pay back the personal loan. 
alone. So, um, you know, as as time goes on for Oxif, it seems that they were uh, running uh, pretty loose down there in Africa. And, uh, you know, the, I, I don't know. If, you really can't say that this is a case of recidivism, but I think it's just more of the uh, lack of executive focus and how it ran throughout the operation, uh, especially within Africa. Jay, next up, we had a very interesting article, and I'm not even sure I should try to uh, articulate the name of the uh, the person who. I, wrote I, it. I would say Diamantis. That one's easy. Yeah, that's the and last. One. Uh, but it. Metallis. Uh, okay. Uh, well, well, we'll print the full name in the show notes. But it was an article that appeared in the uh, New York University. Uh, cl- Compliance and Enforcement blog. It's entitled Ditching Deterrence, Preventing Crime by Reforming Corporations Rather Than Finding Them. And uh, not reforming the corporation, but reforming. And this is a very interesting uh, proposal to try to change how enforcement occurs to move uh, to more deterrent theory of enforcement. Um and it's really based upon the thing, or I guess the thing that struck me the most, Jay, was its opening sentence, which says that corporate criminal law operates firmly in a deterrence mode. And if you start from that position, you can see how many of the tools the Department of Justice utilizes really work towards exactly that, deterring, not punishing. Whereas in individual criminal law, I would, I would say that uh, uh, it's much more geared towards punishment. So if... Um, we have um, uh, uh, corporations, or at least the regulators and the Department of Justice enforcers, trying to uh, deter. And I really think the uh, information the Department of Justice put out over the past year in the form of the evaluation and the new FCPA enforcement policy work towards that. But it was an interesting article. Uh, I commend it to everyone to read it uh, about Mr. Uh, Diamantes is. Uh, proposal. Basically, he wants to have uh, monitors appointed. I'm sure that breaks your heart, but uh, really working with corporations to actively remediate to make sure that character, uh, excuse me, uh, 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 violations do not occur going forward and to move away from uh, coercive reform to more deterrence reform. Uh, We also had a conviction uh, by the Department of Justice in the Iranian trade uh, uh, sanctions uh, case by um, involving a Turkish National Bank. <clears throat> and this was a, a very high-profile case in New York City where um, uh, the, a cooperating witness detailed numerous situations where instances where uh, the Turkish government uh, led an effort to evade Iranian sanctions so that Turkey could basically get gold for shipping uh, embargoed products. Uh, very salacious, very big. Uh, Sam Rubenfeld's been following it, and um, uh, big kudos to uh, the DOJ in New York, coupled with the uh, the FIFA convictions from late 2017. Uh, some two very big ho- high-profile cases that uh, the Department of Justice uh, prosecuted in New York. But we had some also very interesting news around Petrobras. You want to tell us about that, Jay? 
Yeah, they've uh, settled one of the largest um, shareholders' action at $2.95 billion. And this uh, specifically focuses on a class action suit for the U.S. depository shares. So this has nothing to do with the um, Petrobras securities that are um, hosted on the Sao Paulo exchange. And uh, there was some very interesting timing in this matter because they were due to go to the Supreme Court this uh, week to have uh, some issues uh, decided upon the nature of the class. And then they came up with this settlement that uh, happened at the end of last year, and they alerted the court uh, what was going to ha- what they were going to do. So um, our good friend Judge Rakoff is involved in this matter. And um, basically, this settlement, if it's approved, would be the fifth largest U.S. securities class action settlement ever, only exceeded by, and this is really a list of shame, uh, Enron at $7.2 billion, WorldCom at $6.1 billion, Tyco at $3.2 billion, and Sendent at $3.2 billion. So this is uh, shaping up to be one of the most expensive uh, follow-on securities settlements since the Avon settlement, uh, which was back, I believe, in 2015. So big numbers out there. Um, kudos again to the uh, uh, Southern District of New York. And one interesting part that's uh, – um, oh, no, uh, that, I, that, that's, that's all I got to say on Petrobras. Um, do you have anything more to add on that? Yeah, um so actually, we have to give uh, kudos to the plaintiffs' lawyers um, who prosecuted this case. So uh, shout out to the uh, the lead plaintiffs' counsel in this case, uh, successfully navigating it in front of not only Judge Rakoff but winning in the Second Circuit. The case uh, that gone to the Supreme Court, Jay, was on whether there could be a class certified, and that that would have been a very interesting uh, Supreme Court case uh, for both argument and decision. But that's now mooted by this settlement. Uh, in addition to just the uh, the amount of the settlement, uh, and you contrasted that with uh, Avon, or compared it rather with Avon, and actually I would go the other way in contrasting because the Avon uh, follow-on shareholder lawsuit was $62 million. So here we have almost $3 billion, uh, and this is the shareholder case. This is not the case against the company. This is not the case against the individuals. It's not the case against the people paying the bribes. Uh, this is Petrobras. So um, settling, as you correctly noted, uh, in the United States with people who had uh, purchased shares in the United States. This was not people who purchased shares in Brazil. That will probably be handled in Brazil. So um, one of the things that really intrigued me, though, was in Henry Cutter's article in the Risk and Compliance Journal, where he interviewed uh, or got some thoughts from Alexander Raghi, the president of Trace uh, International. And she, I thought, brought up a great point, which is that uh, the uh, amount, it's not simply the amount uh, paid, the gross amount paid, but think about it in terms of the three different components of uh, overall fines and penalties. So you have the investigative costs, which are generally two to six times the amount of the actual uh, criminal penalty, which would be assessed by the DOJ or SEC. Then you have the cost of the fine and the disgorgement. 
Uh, and then there's this 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 cost, the cost of defending and potentially settling one or more ca- class action suits. And even with Avon, uh, who was well north of five hundred million, um, to have another sixty two million. But here you have almost three billion. And uh, Alexandra concludes her comments with when companies are assessing the cost of their compliance program, they should look at their total exposure and not just the narrow cost of fines. So uh, really a great way to think about uh, your overall cost is driven home by this story. Um, The other thing, Jay, is that typically FCPA um, violations do not lend themselves or lead to very large uh, settlements and shareholder cases because it's difficult to point to a, a specific point in time where a share price drops dramatically or uh, the share uh, price is devalued over a long period of time. But we had that situation here. So I'm not certain uh, whether or not the Petrobras uh, settlement will herald an, a new uh, era of shareholder actions. Uh, excuse me, shareholder settlements, I'm sure it will herald a an additional pressure of shareholder actions as many plaintiffs uh, go to uh, bat to try to get some money out of these companies. But it's a huge, huge settlement. It really speaks about the uh, total um, pervasiveness of corruption at Petrobras for them to pay this to uh, to shareholders and it's uh, only going to get more interesting as uh, the Brazilian prosecutors get down to uh, prosecuting uh, Petrobras individually. So um, we're in a new year, Tom, and this, I would guess, uh, means that you're in a new cycle of your uh, monthly uh, podcast. What are you speaking about this month? So, Jay, um, as uh, most of our listeners know, I did a year-long exploration of a best practices compliance program, and I decided that in January what I would do is tie everything up. Uh, really, um, uh, when the new uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy came out, and I wanted to tie that back to the evaluation, which came out in February. So in January, I'm doing 31 days to a more effective compliance program, kind of the top highlights of the things, uh, including uh, what is required under the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, as that was supplemented by both the evaluation and now the uh, FCPA corporate enforcement uh, policy. So it ties everything together for you. It's going to be a lot of information in um, this month, but... uh, it uh, puts a ribbon on uh, or a pretty nice bow with a ribbon of uh, everything that I've done over the past year. So I hope uh, our listeners will uh, check in on that. It uh, posts every day at 10 o'clock on my site and noon on uh, iTunes. Well, it sounds like a great series. And then looks like uh, you've got your first uh, masterclass session. Why don't you tell everyone about that? Right. So uh, Jonathan Marks, who uh, joined us for a short time a little bit earlier in this podcast, Jonathan and I are putting on another compliance masterclass. It's sponsored by Markham LLC. This next one will be held in uh, February, uh, February 11 and 12 in Markham's offices in Miami. I'm going to have more information up on it. You can check it out on my website or at uh, Markham LLP. So uh, that is uh, very excited to, to announce my first uh, compliance master class of the year, particularly given the, uh, the new information the department came out with uh, last year, Jay.
Perfect. So um, I'm I'm resting this weekend because I've got a bye week. So I'm going to try to uh, heal up from my mental injuries and, and get back out there. Uh, you do not have uh, an entrance uh, in, the, in the playoffs, but any thoughts or anybody you're uh, choosing to back? So uh, as you correctly know, I really don't have a dog in this hunt. So, um, But uh, my main man, uh, fellow Michigander, U of M go bluer Tom Brady is uh, still playing. So uh, I think I'm going to ride Brady uh, as long as I can and uh, see where that may take us. And see if now, there's been six is oh, the go ahead, eight is great. <laughs> there's been um, a lot of analysis from us chowder heads taking a look at last season. There was not much of a drop off for Brady because he only played three quarters of a season thanks to the Deflategate thing. But in the year prior and this year, his last quarter of the season has seen his uh, completion percentage dip down from around seventy percent to uh, the low sixties. And also uh, seeing his interceptions going up. So some of the pundits here are, are wondering whether he's breaking down and, you know, whether or not they should have traded Garofalo. But um, I think in the way that Coach Belichick plans things, there's, um, you know, it's good to have home field advantage. But I think also for somebody who's 40 years old and, you know, is the leading quarterback in the NFL, this bye week is really crucial for somebody like Brady to, um, you know, to heal up, to get mentally prepped and to move forward. And, you know, you're in a situation now that if you win three games, you're going to win the Super Bowl. So um, did I do that right? Is it three games or two games if you have the bye? It's uh, th- three games. Divisional so. conference and then Super Bowl. Right. So, um, you know, that's what I'm looking towards. So it. It's, it's nice that we can uh, be unified on Big Blue. And then uh, I, I guess then we'll start talking Celtics and Rockets as, as we progress along. Well, I'm going to start thinking about the Astros pretty soon because uh, pitchers and catchers report in five weeks. Five weeks. That's crazy. You want to take us home, Jay? Yes. So um like to thank everyone for joining us on the first podcast of the new year for the week ending January 5th, 2018, the Has He Lost His Mind episode. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitors, we wish you all a great weekend, and thank you for taking a look at the week in FCPA that was. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA with our special guest, this week, Jonathan Marks. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast that was as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only weekly podcast which wraps up all things FCPA compliance and ethics related. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw. You can email Jay Rosen at j.rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. This is Tom Fox. Thanks again for listening. I hope you'll join us next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.